So today we're going to get into 1 Corinthians 8. Let me just take a moment to pray. Uh, Father, I need your help. <laughs> Father, I pray that this morning that your word would communicate into lives, into situations. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the, with 1 Corinthians 8, what we're getting into is the idea of how can we disagree well. And our passage essentially gets us thinking about when things are right or wrong. You know, what does God think? Are there principles that apply everywhere? Sometimes the right answer isn't the shortest answer. 1 Corinthians 8 proves that. Um, and often we summarize this chapter with only a few sentences that actually miss the whole argument that Paul brings to it. We like things black and white, and often right and wrong isn't that simple. Now, something I was going to do with you guys, but I'm not going to do because it would actually feel a bit too raw, um, is I was going to throw you into a bunch of ethical dilemmas. And the idea with an ethical dilemma, there's kind of like a formula to them almost. Usually you pit something you care about against your values. And often to make them as dramatic as possible, the de decision usually means some sort of loss. And, and generally with ethical dilemmas, they push them to the extreme. So I had prepared a whole bunch of ethical dilemmas and I was going to get you to sort of like respond quickly to them with people around you so that you would basically find that you were disagreeing with people that you were sitting next to. It would have been fun, but again, because these dilemmas usually push things to the extreme, it generally involves dying and children, and I'm not, so I'm just not going to go there. We like things black and white, often right and wrong, isn't that simple? And, and let me read a few verses here from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me start at verse 1. Now we know about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, it's worth understanding the situation that's going on here. So, for example, Paul isn't saying there's going to be a vegetarian <laughs> when he says I will never eat meat again. The, uh, the issue here, basically, they're, first of all, they're responding to a letter. Paul's responding to a letter the Corinthians sent him. So when he says, now about meat sacrificed, food sacrificed to idols... 
he's responding to something they're asking. And it's likely that this was a topic of debate or division among the Corinthian church. This was a charged issue in a way that we don't realize today. We've got our own charged issues, right? You might try to compare it to, like, if Christians were really concerned about eating meat that was halal meat, right? You know, is it okay to eat meat that's been prayed over by a Muslim imam? That isn't as raw an issue for us as what, it was for, what, was what this was for them. You see, in Corinth, uh, there were two types of sacrifices that were regularly done. There was a private sacrifice where some of the animal was burnt, burned on the altar, the priests receive a portion, and the person received back the rest of the meat that they'd used to give a banquet. Um, to avoid these celebrations would cut you off from much of society. And there was also a public sacrifice. Some of the meat was burned on the altar, some went to the priests, and the rest went to the magistrates and others and was often resold in the marketplace. Now, sometimes this, might, this meat might be cheaper. It'd be like the bargain bin meat, okay? And sometimes you wouldn't even realize it. Now, the question then that they're wrestling with is whether it's okay or not to eat this meat. According to William Barclay, this was complicated by the common view people held at the time that demons often would take hold of a person through what they would eat, leading to illnesses of body and mind. So you can understand, right? In an ancient mindset where they didn't understand food hygiene, they didn't understand illness, that actually they might combine, they might connect old meat that had been sacrificed to idols with things that were happening to people and think that might be the work of a demon. And so... For many, there was a lingering fear over what might happen to you if you ate such meat. So, so think about this now. You've essentially got two sides of this debate. If I were to caricature each side for a moment, I'm just imagining what they may have thought. On one side, you might say something like this. Surely as Christians, we can eat the, this meat. We shouldn't cut ourselves off from society so that we can make a difference. Meat is meat. Gods other than the true God don't really exist, so it shouldn't really matter. Some, might add, some would add as well um, that the body doesn't matter anyway. It's only the spirit that counts, which we've talked about before and which Paul um, addresses as a wrong view of the Corinthians. Okay? So that, there's that. The other side might say that it's better to avoid the meat. Avoiding it will make a statement to society that we're different. We should be willing to stand up for our Christian convictions regardless of the cost. Stories are passed around about things that happened to people who, who ate such meat. So some live with a fear of how it might affect them. If we don't know, isn't it better to be safe? So they ask Paul. Okay? So you get the idea here. Okay, it's not an issue in the same way for us today, but this was a very divisive issue for them at the time. And again, it raises this question, how do we disagree well? And so I want you to catch a few things from what Paul says. I'm, I'm mostly focusing just on verse 1. Okay? And so catch a few things here. Check this out. First of all, in verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Stop there for just a second. Right there. We know that we all possess knowledge. Now, what he's saying here is essentially, 
We need to respect others. They have reasons for their views. Now, generally what happens is when we've got our side, we think that of the other side certainly doesn't possess any knowledge. Clearly missing it. Not only that, but this does get complicated sometimes. In that, what you believe is usually a system. It's connected to other things that you believe. It's like a puzzle, or it's all supporting. And so you take out one of those pieces. A puzzle is not a good illustration. Because essentially you take out a piece, and the other pieces collapse. Does somebody have a better illustration for me? Jenga, or something. Okay, yeah. Nice. Whoever said Jenga. Points to you. Okay. And so it's a, it's a system. And so all of a sudden, if somebody's challenging one of the pieces down here, you're more apt to kind of go, well, hold on, my system doesn't work. If, if you pull out that piece, I'm confused, I'm lost. Like, that's, that's what I feel. And so, so this is kind of a challenging thing to be able to do, to be able to, again, with Paul, to go, hold on, we need to respect others. They have reasons for their views. We all possess knowledge. Uh, it made me think of that illustration. Probably many of us have come across this before. The illustration of, like, this ship and a battleship, right? Have you, have you heard of this one? Where they're like out in the middle of the sea and they just have radio communication and they're saying to each other, you move your cor- direct, you know, change your course by five degrees or we're going to collide. And the other one's going, no, you change your course. No, you do it. No, you do it. And finally, there's like the punchline, which is like battleship saying, we're the USS whatever destroyer, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's the USS battleship and it's a lighthouse, right? And, and what we get from that is, is that, you know, sometimes we run into things that we can't get past. But what Paul's trying to put across here is that actually we need to understand the other side. So first of all, we all possess knowledge. The passage of the verse continues. We all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Essentially in this, we need to be humble with what we know. Knowledge puffs up. Or as Paul says it in verse 2, the man who thinks he knows something does not know as he ought to know. Um, this, is a ver- this verse is a call to humility regarding what we think we know. We all get things wrong. We're all developing in our understanding. The key is that we seek God's wisdom over the world's wisdom, as Paul's talked about back in chapter 2. We're all in the process of learning. Our knowledge is not perfect. There's no such thing as a right answer. Obviously, God knows the right answer to any question. There is truth, right? But we don't necessarily know it, okay? Now, in verse 4, Paul does land on a very clear side. Verse 4, Paul says, An idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. So Paul clearly comes out in favor of one side of the argument, but he doesn't stop there. But what I want you to catch at this point right here is just that we need to be humble with what we know. Now, check this out. Here's an example of a time I got this wrong, all right? Um, I was a full-time youth pastor out in Pennsylvania, and the church that I was at there had an event every year that they were really proud of. And the event was a men's game dinner, and they would have something like 500 men come for this game dinner. You know, men, er, game, I don't know, whatever. And every year, they would have a guest speaker from the NRA. The NRA is the National Rifle Association. You could hear, the, you could hear some air leave the room right there. 
Okay. I was a bit shocked by this, right? And so what I did is I wrote one side of an A4 sheet of paper for the leadership of the church, de declaring why as a church we should not be doing this event. I don't care if 500 people come, okay? And I submitted that to the leadership of the church. I made some enemies. <laughs> Boy, actually, if I'd had some discernment, I could have handled that more carefully, more slowly. They may have heard me more. You see what I mean? Like, I, I think actually I could have handled that better. Now, you notice knowledge puffs up. See, what can happen is we know our side of the argument, and so we, we don't understand anyone else, or we, we, we blast in with our view. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. That's the end here of verse 1, that love builds up. Let me come back to that. I want to um, have you notice something else that happens in this chapter that's important. And that's that it's important that we live out of a faithful conscience. Because this some, somehow kind of complicates the argument. And so we find, for example, end of verse 7, since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Or verse 11 and 12, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. See, again, we like things black and white. But everything we do should flow from a clear conscience or it is sin. Think about this. The person who says it doesn't matter whether you eat the meat or not is in fact right, but their response to people who are worried about it would be to just eat meat, that it doesn't matter. For that person whose conscience is weak, it is sin. Now we see in this that our conscience is fallible, but the goal is that our conscience falls in line with God's values and helps us in the right direction. So, for example, the way this is put, uh, there's a lot of similarities between 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. And the way this is put in 1 Corinthians 10.31 is when it says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, so think about this for a moment. What happens in your heart if you think something is sin, but you override that feeling because somebody else told you it was okay? Right? It's not good, is it? You see, we should put God ahead of ourselves, our culture, anything, and try and live in light of that. And so Paul says, essentially, that what comes first, above the argument, is loving our Christian brother or sister. That comes before our Christian freedom. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Well, let's bring this down for a moment. Think about this. What about issues today? Let me give you a few examples of issues that Christians sometimes kind of disagree over, all right? Is it okay for Christians to give tarot card readings? I'm not even kidding. Like, it sounds, sounds baffling, right? What if they're Christian tarot cards? They actually exist. I'm not even kidding. You know, is that better? 
What if you do a normal tarot card reading, you conclude by telling the person that their life's going to fall apart, and then you say, but it isn't true, let me tell you about Jesus. Is that better? All right, let me give you some other examples. Are there places that we shouldn't go as Christians? Uh, there's a, Tony Campolo um, tells this great illustration. It's very you know, loving, fantastic, about you know, him helping out some, basically befriending and helping out some prostitutes and throwing a birthday party for one of the prostitutes. Okay? He tells this nice story. Essentially, he's, it's about where he's traveled to Hawaii for this thing. He finds himself ministering to these prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And again, throws one of them a birthday party. And I'm like, should you really be with prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning when you're away from home? <laughs> right? His point is that God cares for prostitutes. I agree, but I also think we should be wise. Or Christians hotly debate loads of other issues, such as what positions women can take in, in church leadership, various things around homosexuality, whether babies should be baptized. I mean, you could come up with various lists, couldn't you? But now come back for a moment to the group of people in Corinth. This letter would have been read out to the whole church. And as the whole church are there, you can imagine that one side of the argument, you've got some guy who's right about his view, nudging the guy next to him, only to deflate when he hears that he's sinning against Christ, right? Or the other side hears that they're wrong, but is also, but also encouraged to be faithful to God in their conscience. That essentially their view's wrong, but actually if that's what they feel, they should follow it, because otherwise they'd be sinning against, they'd be in sin. In a way, both sides are right and wrong in this situation. And hopefully both sides learn to appreciate and love each other. Let me bring this to a close with a little illustration, kind of a God moment from several years ago. For a few years, I was at this Christian university, and there's a friend of mine. Um, his nickname was Troll, okay? Uh, Troll was a very big guy, six, like kind of six and a half feet tall and big. And he had piercings all over the place. He was part of a group of friends I had that felt as though their Christian freedom meant that they could swear at will, okay? So they were, they were Christians deeply, but for some reason there was this funny belief they had where they would just swear. I mean, it's just awkward, kind of uncomfortable, whatever. And, and Troll, he's a great guy, but all of his, he, he was a scary looking dude. So you got a six and a half foot huge guy and he would wear dresses, okay? So you could see him a mile off, all right? Great guy. Anyways. <laughs> now, there's an Easter Sunday morning. And I'm at this church. I've never been there before, but everybody's all dressed up and everything like that. It's a lovely church. And it comes time for the scripture reading on Easter Sunday. And the person who steps up to give the scripture reading is Troll. And what I saw in that moment was that with all of his dresses and piercings and whatever that he'd come to love this church and they'd come to love him. Right? Now, realizing this, disagreement brings out the worst in people. 
we need to be able to disagree and love at the same time. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We'll disagree about various things. We need to be able to disagree and love and be clear with each other that our love is greater than our disagreement. Paul doesn't set aside truth. He doesn't say there's no right view as some would like to. His concern, however, is that we disagree well as we are built up in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need your help with this, especially over issues that can be hard or contentious. Give us respect for others. Give us love. Give us humility. Help us to see you at work in ways and places that we don't even understand. Help us to be able to disagree well as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.